This is Why We Write, a podcast of Leslie University. Each week, we bring you conversations with authors from the Leslie community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. Hi, I'm Danielle LeGro-George, the director of the Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing at Leslie University, who has the pleasure of interviewing Tracy Batiste. Hello. Tracy, I'm really thrilled that we get a chance to talk today. Uh, I want to introduce you as a writer, an editor, a former school teacher, a New York Times bestselling author of Minecraft The Crash, as well as the creepy Caribbean series The Jumbies, which includes The Jumbies, Rise of the Jumbies, and The Jumbie God's Revenge, just published in September of this year. Uh, You're also the author of contemporary young adult novel Angel's Grace and nine nonfiction books for kids in elementary through high school. And you also, Tracy, happen to be on the faculty of the Leslie University MFA program in creative writing uh, in the concentration of writing for young people. So we are so happy that you are with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's a really good introduction. I, you know, I hear introductions like that and I think, oh, do I sleep? Like, how do I get these things done? I don't know what happens. And so this is a really nice segue to my first question, which has to do with your practice as a writer and work-life balance. Um, the first book of your Jumbies trilogy has the following, and I would argue delightful, dedication to my children, Alyssa and Adam, without whom this book would have been finished years ago. So <laughs> how, how, when, where do you write? What are the conditions of for your writing? So uh, when I was writing the first Jumbies book, I was not writing full time at the time. At the, I was uh, an editor at McGraw-Hill during that time. And so I mostly wrote on the weekends or at night, often on the New Jersey transit bus. Wow. <laughs> Heading into and out of the city uh, is a lot is where a lot of my writing got done because once I was home, then it was you know full time mommy duty, which is exhausting. Yeah, uh, especially with two really really young guys, they were really little when I was getting started. So, um, you know, the first Jumbies book took nine years for me to write it and, and have it like be in good shape just because it was just this piecemeal kind of work. I would, you know, work on it a little bit and put it away and work on it a little bit. And then you know how you'll lose momentum. I, I'm sure you've had this experience yes. where if you put something down for long enough, you kind of lose momentum on it and then you it takes a little while for you to sort of get back to get back into the groove of it so um the first jumpies book really really took a very long time to figure out because of that but um you know there are all of these sort of in between times that i would i would just work i would just say you know Saturday morning from, you know, whatever time to whatever time, that's mommy's work time. And I would either make sure that they were busy, they had something else to do, they were out of the house, you know, whatever, I would make other arrangements so that I could just have that time to be able to get the work done. Um, And then when I wasn't able to do that, I would try to squeeze it in 
whenever I could. And I mean, I feel like this is like the plight of the modern woman anyway, mm-hmm. where, you know, the things that we really want to do, uh, the things that we are passionate about, we kind of have to fit them into the cracks between all of the other things, the, you know, the, the full-time job, the being a mom, the, you know, being the person who kind of, you know, holds all of the, you know, strings together as far as the household and, and, and all of that is concerned, you know, we're still doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And then we have to fit this stuff in sort of in between. Right. But you apparently have successfully been able to, to negotiate that, um, you know, not only making that first Jumbies book, but also the second and the third. Um, I want to go into the Jumbies books. For those of us who don't have the good or misfortune of knowing what a Jumbie is, could you tell us? Sure. So Jumbies are, are, they're really evil spirits from Caribbean folklore. So there are a bunch of different types of jumbies. Jumbies is kind of a catch-all phrase. Uh, so the, it's uh, these people who were really evil during their lifetimes after they die. Uh, the tradition is that three days after they die, they become jumbies. And, and, and there's all different types of jumbies. And jumbies, because they are this oral tradition throughout the Caribbean, there may be different types of jumbies depending on which Caribbean island or South or Central American country that you're hearing the story in. So it's never quite exactly the same because, of course, the way that the stories got disseminated, you know, everybody would sort of take their own liberties with, you know, the core characters or their, you know, their physical descriptions or the kinds of things that they had the ability to do or even the kinds of ways that people would interact with them, especially to kind of counteract their their evil. So throughout the Caribbean, there's like, you know, very, a wide variety of, um, even within like each jumby type, there might be a wide variety of the types of stories. But mm-hmm. at their core, they are these evil creatures who come out at night uh, to cause mayhem, often to um, kill you um, or eat children, which oh. is, you know, super fun. <laughs> So, so why, why Tracy, these children eating characters, what, what led you to write uh, the first Jumbies book to the subject matter? Oh, isn't it fun though? I mean, just think about it. <laughs> just yeah. some creature outside your window waiting to eat you. Doesn't that sound like a good time? Actually, um, my mom would tell me these stories when I was a little kid. And when I was growing up in Trinidad, people would talk about Jumbies like they could be anybody. They could be the next door neighbor. They could be, you know, the teacher. They could be the bus driver. It literally could be absolutely anyone during the day because during the day they look like a regular person. And at night is when their jumpy selves come out. Mm -hmm. And so my mom would tell me these stories and I love them. I was completely delighted by this idea that people could change at night and become these sort of scary creepy things that might be out to get you. Like I really found it thrilling. And I also knew that it wasn't real. Like I wasn't really expecting that this was like an actual thing. It was just like this really fun kind of scary story. And so when I was here, I moved to the United States when I was 15. And obviously I had my kids here in the, in New Jersey. 
And they really did not grow up with these kinds of stories. And certainly not in the same way that I grew up with it, where it was, you know, jumbies were in the air. They could be anybody at any time. People would, mm-hmm. you know, mention a jumbie at any moment. So I thought that it was important to introduce these creatures to my kids so that they would have some connection to their Trinidadian heritage and understand what these stories were and so the stories wouldn't be lost. And at first I really just thought it was just going to be for and Adam and mm-hmm. not really something that, you know, reached a wider world. But then um, I think I, I quickly realized that there would be a lot of, you know, expat Trini parents who would want to share these stories with their own kids. And I thought, okay, well, that's my audience. It's going to be my kids and parents like me mm-hmm. who's left Trinidad who are going to find, you know, that they can pass on traditions through these stories. Yeah. And and not only parents too. Uh, I think adult readers will will appreciate what you've done in drawing on Caribbean and African folk tales and myth and the characters who we're familiar with appearing in your books, like Buki and Malik. And in Haiti, I'm Haitian, we have Buki and Malice, you know, drawing from the right. Anansi trickster uh, West African. Um, tales and you have La Diablesse in, in these books and the Sukuyan, the Duane and Mamadlo. So it's just really rich in myth. And also, uh, I think you do a really wonderful job of connecting myth with the contemporary moment. Um, so some wonderful stuff happening in, in this trilogy. Um, so uh, Thank you. I, I actually wanted to say that um, with as far as Buki and um, Malice is concerned, I did actually take those from um, the Haitian Anansi stories uh, for this particular story um, mm-hmm. and changed, um, you know, ch- obviously changed one to, to Malik mm-hmm. so that I could have them in there. And I, I did that because I wanted the story to feel not exactly Trinidadian. I mm-hmm. wanted it to feel like it could be any of the Caribbean islands so that anybody from the Caribbean could feel like you know, this was happening on their particular island, um, they could take ownership of it. So, you know, it was very, it was very much a conscious decision on my part to look at what the stories were throughout the region and try to incorporate that as much as I could. Well, I absolutely felt that. It does feel expansive and pan-Caribbean or cross-Caribbean, if you will, the stories do. Uh, And I think Mm -hmm. that's part of their strength. So you wrote that first book, but... There was a second book and then a third book. Can you talk a little bit about how um, this one book then became three books, became part of a trilogy? Right. So (laughs) we were, it it really was supposed to be a one-off. It was not supposed to be a trilogy at all. When I, when we were in the process of selling the first book, we did offer a series. I did have ideas for other Jumbi books. I, I really mostly had an idea for a second book, but um, you know, we tried to pitch it as a series because I figured, you know, I, I could see the potential of carrying on these stories beyond what I had put there on the page already. And in the first book, there were a couple of things that I left open so that I would have space if there ever were the opportunity to write a second book or a third book or, or whatever. 
Um, but when it was bought by Elise Howard at Algonquin Young Readers, she was not sure how Jumbies would take to an American audience at all. And so I certainly wasn't either. You know, um, I remember in an early marketing meeting, they asked me who I thought was going to read this book. And I said, well, besides my mom, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yes, besides your mom. And I'm like, well, you know, people from the Caribbean, I, I feel like, you know, there are going to be Caribbean people who are going to read the story and want to read it to their kids. But beyond that, I really didn't have any expectations. So it was a, it was very much a surprise to me and to the folks at Algonquin when the first book took off as well as it did, as quickly as it did. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we started having a conversation about doing a second Jumbie book. And I hadn't done all of the Jumbies yet. I had left a few Jumbies off the first one. Uh, so it was easy then to go into the second book. And, and the thing that I decided to do with the second book was um, I'm introducing new Jumbies, so Mama Jalo and Papa Bois are the two that, that uh, two new Jumbies that come into the story um, in Rise of the Jumbies. Mm-hmm. And in the first one, one of the things that I had very briefly introduced was this idea that slave ships had come to the island and that there were people uh, chained in the bottom of these slave ships. Right. And um, I, I wasn't sure how people were going to take that in in the story. But nobody mentioned it. Nobody seemed to bat an eye at it at all. So I felt that this was my opportunity to really go there, to really mm-hmm. go into this idea of how people were taken and brought across the Atlantic from Africa. So in the second one, I just, you know, I just went, I just went for it <laughs> and mm-hmm. I decided that I would take the mermaids and kind of reimagine mermaids mm-hmm. as these magical creatures that became magical creatures because of the trauma that they suffered when they were taken from the West Coast of Africa and, and brought um, onto these slave ships. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, you know, how so the second book and then the second book was only supposed to be just a second book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, there was no plan for a third one at all. Mm-hmm. And before the second one even came out, my editor called me. The kids and I were both, uh, we were all in Trinidad for the summer. Mm-hmm. And I got a phone call from Elise. And she said, you know, people seem to be talking about a trilogy. And I said, well, you know, you said you only wanted two books. So here we go. Here are the two books. She's like, no, um, you know, why don't you start thinking about doing another one? And Mm. honestly, the second one was so difficult for me, just emotionally difficult because I did that bit with the mermaids and the trans- transatlantic slave trade. And of course, it's not the whole story. It's just a small piece of the story in the, in the middle. Mm-hmm. But it really was, it took an emotional toll on me to write that um, and to do it in a way that was delicate because, of course, I'm writing it for really little kids. Right. Um, so I didn't have much left in me at that point 
to do a third book. And I had no idea what I would do for a third book because I had used all of the Jumbies that I had available in, in the folklore. But that was, that was 2017. And it was August 2017. And it was when Hurricane Maria was going through the Caribbean and just devastating Caribbean islands. And um, when the kids and I came back to New Jersey and they were getting ready for school, I was watching the Weather Channel and just watching how this hurricane was just decimating these islands. And that's when mm-hmm. I remembered Huracan. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Weather Channel actually put up a fact on the screen that said, you know, Huracan is the Carib god, god of storms. Mm-hmm. And of course, I grew up with knowing the Caribs as the indigenous people in Trinidad. And I thought, oh, that's right. I forgot about Huracan. And mm-hmm. so that's where the third book came from. It, it directly came from watching Hurricane Maria mm-hmm. devastate the Caribbean. Um, and I thought, okay, so this is where we go next. Um, and I had also had the idea that if we did do three books ever, that the first one would take place mostly on land. The second one would have a lot of the action taking place in the water. And the third one would take place mostly in the sky. So it was, it, it felt like, you know, it was meant to, to be, to, to come this way. Mm-hmm. And I got started on it um, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you you. Uh, I'm happy for the comment around the second book uh, and that it was taking up slavery and slavery, and you had the challenge of how to explain slavery for the young reader or to the young reader. Um, I think that's a really interesting area. Um, but I want to go back just a little bit. You said that in the there was a reference to a slave, a slave ship in the first book, but no one mentioned it. No one bad an eye. No one bad an eye good or no one bad an eye bad. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, nobody, nobody ever mentioned it at all. You know, I really did think that someone would say something about the fact that I had mentioned the slave ship. Like a reviewer book, or a reader? Like a rev- exactly, or, or anyone, just even in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, that somebody would bring it up because the thing is, a lot of parents would come up to me at events, at um, you know book festivals, and so on, and, and want to talk about the books. Mm-hmm. And never did I have anyone mention that, and I was kind of waiting for it. So it was a real surprise to me when nobody ever worried about it, and so it made me feel really great. Then I was like, oh, okay, so I can talk about it like I wasn't I honestly wasn't sure and I thought oh great I can talk about this with little kids so here we go (laughs) so I was really excited I was very very encouraged by the fact that nobody thought that this was you know an inappropriate thing to have had I see okay got it and so you thought people would have taken offense to a reference to slavery? Yeah, in a- I definitely did. I, I, Interesting. I, I certainly expected that there would some that somebody would think that this was too difficult a topic for this age group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, well, it's absolutely a part of Caribbean lore. I think these these jumbies and these characters, as you mentioned, come out of 
our colonial history, right? So then to explicitly right, state sure. it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, for sure. And I think that for Caribbean kids, I wasn't expecting that kind of conversation from Caribbean kids or Caribbean parents because we do talk about this sort of thing a lot. Right. But I think that for the American I audience, okay. I was expecting some pushback from there. And there, there really wasn't. So it made me, it definitely encouraged me for the second one to go as deep as I did in the second one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really glad to have that second book you know, in the world. Uh, I want to talk a little bit later about, about mermaids. At the heart of your Jumbies trilogy is your protagonist, Corinne Lemaire, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah. love how with her, you have centered black and brown girl presence and girlhood in young adult fiction. You're extending her some fundamental freedom and expansive realities. Um, and by extension to, to black girl characters. Thank you for this. Um, were you thinking that this was what you were doing, uh, if this is the case? No, I, re- I really wasn't. You know, I was just, um, you know, I was just writing a girl, and I was just yeah. writing a girl that I, I kind of knew. Um, you know, I, I mean, growing up in the Caribbean, and especially when I grew up in the Caribbean, it's so different than it is now. Like, the kind of freedom that I had to run around the island, to climb trees, to climb hills, to skid my knees, and just, you know, like, I would like, you know, like, I would, we'd get cuts and bruises and just, like, throw dirt on it and just keep on running. Like, that was, that was my life. Like, we didn't, there were no adults around. You know, we were just, like, you know, in the wild, like, doing whatever, like in the summer, because yeah. there wasn't summer camp. There was no summer camp. Like nobody went to camp. Like what is that? Schools out. Go outside and play. Ride your bike. Dig some holes. You know, like that was that was what we were doing. And I remember, like I would spend days up in like my grandmother's plum tree yeah. with my cousin. We would yeah. take like we tear off these pieces of like brown paper. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where we would get this brown paper, but we tear off pieces of brown paper and we would put salt and pepper inside of it. Like the kind of pepper that people make in, in the Caribbean where, you know, that they crush up the pepper or yeah. they like make a pepper sauce. Yeah. And so we would put salt and pepper into the little brown paper, climb up into the tree and we would sit in the tree like pretty much all day picking plums off the tree and eating them with the little salt and pepper thing in our hands, in the brown paper in our hands. Like, all day, that was like, that was what we did. There were no adults. I, I don't know where the adults were. I don't know what they were doing. They certainly weren't looking at us because there were plenty of times we fell out of that tree, oh. you know, and then they'll just climb right back up. Yeah. So I was just writing a girl that I yeah. knew, like all the girls that I knew yeah. who had this kind of life where they would just, you know, be out in the world doing whatever they were doing out in the world, it did not occur to me at all um, that I was, you know, doing some honor really to girls. It was just girl. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was just girl that I knew. Mm -hmm. You know, she she is not different from all of the cousins that I had growing Mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Yeah, I love that character. She's she's curious. She's strong-willed. She's smart. She's a Caribbean girl. She's got a crew, and right, <laughs> the crew. The crew is is 
it's very, very important to have a crew. But I mean, but again, like we were this band of children running around the Caribbean. Like we, nobody was by themselves ever. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always, you know, the, you know, you and the eight cousins or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody was ever by themselves running around. Right. Um, and, and probably this was why, you know, there were no adults around because they were always, you know, a band of children. Like, and we all kind of looked out for each other right. where, you know, the youngest one, you know, the oldest one would look out for the next one and the next one would look out for the one younger. So, you know, like we all were like pulling each other along. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, you know, this is why the, the adults didn't worry so much. I mean, we all came back home at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, sweaty and dirty and smelling horrible, I'm sure. But we were all together and all in one piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she is she is representative of your childhood, of of, of girlhood. And Corinne is half jumpy. Right. <laughs> she is. So. so this idea too, this idea of making her half jumpy, I mean it's you know, it's certainly one of the driving factors for the story plot wise. Mm-hmm. But it's also because I'm biracial. My father is Indian, um, my mother is African. And mm-hmm. so I, I really wanted to have the main character be uh, biracial the way that I was, except that, you know, her races are human and chumby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really love how this takes up the question of identity, you know, how this character, through the character, we're, we're looking at the question of identity and, 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 and mixed culture. And, you know, the Caribbean is, is a mixed culture, right? A mestizo culture. So I, I appreciate right, that yeah. uh, in the book. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, people like you, like Jason Reynolds, also on our MFA faculty, like Jackie Woodson, are really changing the face of young adult fiction and the literary landscape in positive ways by bringing these characters who 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 seem very natural to, to you, certainly to us, into a, a larger landscape that had been, I think one could argue, missing them, um, uh, uh, certainly. Um, any thoughts about that? Uh, about uh, about intri- uh, having these all of these different types of characters now that we have them. Yes. Since we didn't have them before. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, you know, it's really interesting. We are living in very interesting times as far as the world is concerned, where we're you know, the, the kinds of things that are happening socially are feel like the opposite of what's happening in the publishing industry. Because the publishing industry has been very hard-pressed of late, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in, in the field of children's literature and particularly in the United States, mm-hmm. to really diversify the offerings and not just diversify the offerings on the page, but also diversify the offerings by the creators that they choose to work with. So there are far more opportunities now for people like me or um, people like Jason Reynolds and, and Jackie Woodson and, and, and so on to publish more of the kinds of books that have deep meaning to us and deep connection to us for a wider audience while at the same time 
we're living in a world where, you know, that the idea of who is different um, and who is marginalized is often being, um, you know, like being more other, like there's more othering that's happening mm-hmm. out in the wide world mm-hmm. while within the publishing industry, um, it's getting really very interesting to see the two things happening mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that said, it's still not quite at the level that I would like to see it. Um, I think publishing still has, and, I'm, and, and when I say publishing, I, I'm talking about American publishing because I know that publishing in other parts of the world is different. Um, uh, you know, publishing still has quite a long way to go as far as their inclusivity is concerned. And I, I know that people keep talking about inclusivity and how great it's been getting, and yes, it is certainly miles and miles away from what it was, mm-hmm. but it's still not quite where it needs to be. There's still quite a lot of creators who are making books about cultures that they don't really know, that they're mm-hmm. not really part of, mm-hmm. um, which I find at this point to be so puzzling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people know that this is what the audience is looking for, that people are willing to, you know, like there was, I think there was a time when people thought that if you had black or brown kids on a cover, it wouldn't sell. And that's clearly no longer the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so it still kind of puzzles me why it is there aren't more creators of color getting contracts. Um, and, and, and really getting like the big contracts and like the big marketing push and, and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's starting to happen a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at people like, uh, for example, the Rick Riordan imprint at Disney. Um, you know, they have made a very conscious effort to do that, to, to cultivate creators of color mm-hmm. talking about their own mythologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are, some new imprints like uh, Salam Reads, for example. I can't, I can't remember who Salam Reads, um, who the parent company is right now. But, um, you know, there are a lot of imprints that are like that, that are really very specifically looking to cultivate uh, writers of diverse backgrounds writing about their own cultures. And that's really great. Um, but we're still not quite at the level of where we would, I feel like we would need to be. I, I think I read an article recently about who the top earners were in children's literature, and they're still mostly white men, mm-hmm. which is fine, but, you know, it, sh- it should not be, like, all <laughs> white men on, on, you know, like, on a top 10 list. You know, where's the diversity there? So that is, you know, that's where I'm thinking is is still... We still have quite a long way to go. But, you know, I have been extremely fortunate in that I have been able to write these stories that are not in the United States. They're not set in the United States. They're really um, quite alien to an American audience. Uh, and to bring these kinds of stories here has been really, really lovely for me to be able to share that with kids. And anytime I go to school, and I do school visits, 
it is just a lot of fun to introduce these creatures to little kids and see their reactions to it and see them get connected with this culture that I grew up with. So, you know, for me, it is extremely satisfying to have been able to do this and to be able to keep doing it and to be able to make a living doing it. You know, like that's, it, like, you know, that's an important consideration as well. Like I'm able to make a living writing these stories, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a thing that I think um, I could have said even maybe 10 years ago. I don't know it would, that it would have happened 10 years ago. So, you know, so yes, we do have a long way to go, but mm-hmm. we've made so many strides forward. Um, it's really great. And I'm, I'm super, super excited to see uh, now, especially that there's so many more stories with people from different cultures being able to tell their mythologies mm-hmm. like that. It's extremely exciting to me mm-hmm. um, because I feel like there's so, so much there to explore. Like I grew up on, you know, Greek and Roman mythology. And so it's, it's really exciting for me to see, you know, stories come out of China and mm-hmm. Thailand. And um, it's just, uh, it's wonderful. There's so many new books that are coming out in the next couple of years that I'm, I'm so excited to get into my own hands, frankly, um, you know, um, and then maybe I'll share them with some other children. <laughs> like I want to read them for myself. Yes. Yeah. I think it, it, you raise some really great points about who is, who is allowed to tell uh, X type of story and also, um, you know, raise the uh, questions around publishing and publishers. And I think it's really important that we, um, have publishing houses that uh, are not challenged by stories, all kinds of stories, stories that may not represent, you know, main mainstream perspectives. I also appreciate what you're doing in reminding, um, I'll say, quote unquote, mainstream readers that uh, such stories as Caribbean stories are not so foreign to them. Uh, recently this summer, there was this kerfuffle over uh, Disney's announcing that its next live-action adaptation of The Little Mermaid would feature a young woman named Halle Bailey as The Little Mermaid. Uh, Disney right, wrote, yes. <laughs> yeah. Disney wrote that she was really the, the best um, person for the role, but Halle Bailey is, was black, and an uproar ensued once the announcement had been made. Um, and that was followed by some clapback by Tracy Batiste, right? Uh, <laughs> in a New York Times opinion piece entitled, Mermaids Have Always Been Black. Uh, Tracy, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that opinion piece and, and what was going on? Um, uh, what, what led you to write it? So I was actually in the Bahamas when that news broke about Disney and Halle Bailey and what was going on. And I did not have good Wi-Fi at the hotel purposefully. You know, I was I was on vacation. I was taking a break. I was not really trying to be connected to anything other than me swimming in the ocean for that week. But I kept getting tagged in things. And so uh, in the like, you know, very narrow window of time when I did have Wi-Fi in the evening, 
Um, I would see all these notifications coming in, but I wasn't sure exactly what the story was. So when I got back home that Saturday was when I was able to really look through and see what the issue was. And, and what was happening was that people were clapping back already and they would tag my second book, Rise of the Jumbies, which of course features Black Mermaids um, as sort of evidence. You know, here, we already have this. We're, you know, we're already talking about this. You know, what do you mean you can't have Black Mermaids? Tracy's already done this, you know. Um, so I reached out to my editor and I said, you know, why don't we do an opinion piece? I can write up an opinion piece really quickly and we can try to um, get it out somewhere. And I think that Monday, um, they said that the time wanted to run it. So I had, I think, something something like three hours to clean it up, to get the um, all of the facts straight and the sources right with the editor at the Times. And, you know, we got it out there. And the fact is, you know, for me, mermaids have always been black. You know, growing up in Trinidad, you know, everybody that I saw swimming in the ocean were black and brown people. My father is the best swimmer I know. Like, he would just strike out on the waves and swim out to the fishing boats, hang out with the fishermen for a few minutes, you know, like, literally just put his hand on the boat and hang out there to, like, rest his body for a few minutes and then swim back. You know, like, I... I would see him like diving underneath the waves and, and just, you know, like going for, for ages. And he swims every morning. Still, he mm. goes in the sea every single morning at like four or five o'clock in the morning for his swim. Um, so all the mermaids I know are black and brown people. So I didn't know what anybody was talking about. I mean, I loved the little mermaid. The little mermaid is one of my favorite um, stories. The original um, Hans Christian Andersen one, which is far more brutal than the Disney version. I also did quite like the Disney version of The Little Mermaid. Um, you know, so I am quite a big fan of them, but it was a real surprise to me to think that um, there could only be one type of mermaid. But then, honestly, too, there's a bit of frustration when you do look up mermaids um, online, like if you search for mermaids, mm -hmm. you, you're more likely to find uh, a mermaid with blue or green skin than one with brown or black skin. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, there, there is a cultural disconnect there. Mm -hmm. And you have to think, well, you know, <laughs> they call the world the big blue marble because we're mostly ocean, right? Mm -hmm. Ocean exists pretty much everywhere on yeah. earth why why would mermaids only be european like that does not seem right to me mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know so we did have a little bit of fun with that opinion piece um, and it did come together very quickly uh and the response to it has been really quite good so um mm -hmm. i actually ran into someone someone a couple of weeks ago a teacher who said that she was going to use the opinion piece in her class mm -hmm. um, or mythology class that she's doing. So yeah, I'm it, glad that it has the reach that it has. Yeah. You end it um, by saying this, we know there are black mermaids. We have seen them. We have been them. 
They are walking around right now, everywhere, waiting for the sea. That's so lovely and poetic. <laughs> it's, it's because I am always walking around looking for the <laughs> sea. I was talking about myself. <laughs> okay. But I can relate. I can absolutely relate. No, I know. And I think a lot of people can. I really, I really do. I, I think that, um, you know, I feel, and I think, especially as a Caribbean kid, I feel very, very much connected to the ocean. And, um, you know, I always want to be in the water. Like, honestly, like I, um, I don't know why I don't live near the sea. It's really weird <laughs> that I don't because I love the ocean so much. And I feel so much better when I go swimming. I always um, come back out and I'm so much calmer after a swim. So for me, it seems, you know, obvious that, you know, we, we are of the ocean and we are just, you know, waiting to get back in. Yeah. yeah. Now, most of your work focuses um, or, or is written for young people. Yes. Was that a deliberate decision you made to write for this particular audience? Um, you know, when I started thinking about being a writer, I did kind of think that I would write for adults. Um, but when I moved to the United States when I was 15, I remember reading a book by Rosa Gee called The Friends. And it was about a girl who had just moved from Trinidad to, uh, to New York, like exactly as I had. And the parallels there between what was happening in that book, The Friends, and my life were so striking that it, and I had such a good connection to it that I immediately started thinking that maybe I didn't want to write for adults after all. Maybe I wanted to write for kids like me. And it was at that point I really started thinking about um, writing books for younger readers. And, I, and when I really got started, uh, I thought I would be a picture book writer. Um, picture books, it turns out, are extremely difficult to write. They are deceptive in that they are short and they are cute, but they are extremely difficult to write. So I was not successful at first uh, trying to write picture books, but I did find that writing for middle grade audience uh, really worked for me. Like I, I had that uh, voice, I guess, mm -hmm. for, um, you know, preteen, early teen audiences. Mm -hmm. And I found that I really enjoyed it because then I could kind of go back into who I was at, you know, 12, 13, 14, and just channel that onto the page. And mm -hmm. it was so much fun for me that I kind of forgot for a while about writing for older people, um, for grownups. Mm -hmm. um, so I only, I really only have a couple of short stories that are for adults. Mm -hmm. And you were also a school teacher, no? Yes, I was. I got mostly second grade because they're still cute, but they can tie their shoelaces. <laughs> okay, but you don't write for second graders, though. You write for middle school, right? Um, no, I do have a couple of picture books that are coming out, which will be for um, much younger kids. But that would be more um, preschool, kindergarten age, uh, maybe first grade age kids. Um, I am working on a chapter book series, which would be for a first to second grade audience. Mm -hmm. um, that is nowhere close to 
being finished, not even slightly. So that will that that's not a thing that will happen for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you anticipated my next question, which was, "What's next for you?" Oh, well, um, so a few things. I tend to, um, you know, coming from the Caribbean and being a Catholic schoolgirl, I tend to be a little overambitious, which I, I think is a thing that you probably will be familiar with. Coming Thank from you, the Tracy. Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> Calling me out. <laughs> um, you know, so <clears throat> I tend to work on several things at a time. Uh, so right now, I am doing revisions for a nonfiction book about African history before colonialism. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is also for a middle grade audience, so ages eight and up. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really, that one is my first, that will be my first trade nonfiction book. All of the other nonfiction books that I've done really have been for a school and library audience, which is a little bit different than um, selling for, for trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have um, I have another novel that I am working on concurrently with that one, which is going to be a, it's another middle grade fantasy, not uh, out, outside of the scope of the Jumbie series entirely. Um, and then uh, at the beginning of this year, and I don't know if you know this, Danielle, but uh, Chris Lynch, who's one of our faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, at Leslie, one of our writing for young people faculty, asked me to collaborate with him on a young adult novel that's a romance, which does, um, which is a little bit fantasy in that it um, sort of plays with the idea of Celtic and Caribbean gods mm. manipulating a young couple to their for their own means. Mm. So that is something that Chris and I have been working on since maybe February of this year, um, just uh, back and forth, off and on, that's while he's doing other projects and I'm doing other projects. So that's the thing that is also in the work. Okay. A lot, a lot going on, Tracy, for you, which is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So Tracy, um, what moves you in a work of art? or of literature? I think passion is the, is the thing. You know, like I feel like the idea that you can be deeply connected to something, and it doesn't have to be um, obviously not, not necessarily like passion for a person, but passion for maybe an idea. So with like in the first Jumbies book, the thing that I was very passionate about talking about was colonialism and and the idea of having an indigenous group of people, in this case, the Jumbies, Mm. uh, be marginalized Mm -hmm. by a dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And that really is what that book is about. And the second one, obviously, I I really wanted to talk about um, the transatlantic slave trade and, and what was the after effects of that, like how that traumatized people and how it transformed people. I mean, the mermaids were literally transformed, but, you know, I'm talking about um, obviously a different kind of transformation, um, you know, that the audience can then take away and and translate to um, how they see their own lives or the people around them. Mm -hmm. And in the third one, uh, the thing that I really wanted to talk about was climate refugees, Mm -hmm. because we're looking at 
um, the you know climactic changes in the world that are affecting the lives of people and their ability to um, live in the homes that they you know loved and have grown up in. So so I feel like in books the thing that I connect to myself when I'm writing is you know what is the core passionate thing inside of it that I really want to talk about. But as a reader, that's also the thing that I am very much connected to when I read a book and I can see the passion that the writer has for that subject, for the thing that they really, really want to say, the thing that they really want to deeply share with me, the reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always the thing that moves me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tracy, we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, I usually ask folks one final question. Maybe I have two two final questions for you. Okay. Um, the penultimate question is, you know, this pos- podcast is called Why We Write. So mm-hmm. the question is, why do you write? I think you've answered that in, in uh, a variety of ways, but I thought I'd ask you the question directly. Why do you write, Tracy Batiste? I cannot not write, I think. <laughs> I was always that kid who was telling stories um, from very, very young. Um, and I, I feel like I would always be telling a story or always be writing a story regardless of whether I was published or not. So I can't not do it. And that's, that's why I do it. Okay. And is there a question you would have liked me to have asked you? Oh, I did not think about that at all. <laughs> um, hmm, I don't know. I mean, I think your questions have been so good and thorough. I feel like we've taught, we've covered such quite a lot of ground. I think that, you know, like maybe the thing I'll circle back to is the, the first thing um, when you were talking about uh, work-life balance, because I, I feel like, there are a lot of writers who have difficulty with with work life balance, and you know my method, of course, with the first set of Jumbie's books was to um, to work kind of in between days, you know, like whenever I could find time. I, I, I kind of call it kind of working in the cracks or, or whatever. Um, but I do get questions about that a lot from from writers about how how you manage it. And, and now that I am busy and I'm doing several projects and I travel a lot, you know, how do I manage it? And I think the thing that is, um, that works for me the best is not pressuring myself to write every day. Like, I, I don't think that that is necessary to like physically write every day. I think that we are, as creators, we are always thinking about story and, you know, we have to also allow the subconscious mind to to work on stuff while we're working on other things, you know, to like just let it do its thing. And I've started to tap into that a lot more, like allowing my subconscious to work on things and just, you know, not put pressure on myself. Just know that, you know, there are certain things that are going to be worked out kind of behind the scenes while I am doing the other things, while I'm running the kids around to their various after-school things, while I am, you know, doing the dishes, while I'm making dinner, while I'm doing the groceries, whatever it is, 
um, and then I can come back to something and the story will still be there. Um, you know, my mind will have had the opportunity to work on it. So, mm -hmm. so I think, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, not putting pressure on myself, like undue pressure on myself mm -hmm. to create and to always be creating. Like if I hadn't written something down today, like, you know, I'm a bad writer or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. No, um, you know, my brain is still working on stuff. Maybe I didn't physically write anything today and that's okay. That is a lovely note to end this interview on. Tracy, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for this interview, Danielle. It was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information on Tracy Batiste, Danielle Legros-Georges, and our creative writing program, go to leslie.edu slash podcast. The link is in the show notes. Next week, we're talking to Cheryl Tan, author of Sarong Party Girls, an Amazon Best Book of the Month that has been called a modern-day Emma set in the glitzy city of Singapore. Here's a clip. Uh, in Singapore, you know, you're barely done with lunch and then you already start talking about where we're going to eat dinner or what we're going to have for dinner. Covering fashion for 10 years, I realized that I, was, I had surrounded myself primarily with people who actively avoided eating and food. <laughs> and somehow that made me really miss my grandmother's food and the food of my aunties and my mom. And it also made me realize that I'd never learned how to cook with my aunties and my, my, my mom and my grandmothers. And so I didn't know how to make the food that I grew up eating. I uh, went home and I begged my aunties to let me into the kitchen with them. And uh, they were very surprised because they had always tried to teach me how to cook. And I refused to do it because I had always seen that as something that my mother, like her mother and her mother, uh, her grandmother had to do in order to be a good wife. And when I was growing up, I said, I'm not going to do any of that. You know, I'm not going to do this good wife business. I'm going to grow up and write books.